episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organizations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood, and valued. Visit abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, my goal is to bring you meaningful, in-depth conversations with people helping to shape the world of internal communication. Practitioners, leaders, authors, creatives and consultants. People like Shell Holtz, Dr. Kevin Ruck, Bill Quirk, Rachel Miller, Russell Grossman and Liam Fitzpatrick and Sue Dewhurst. Now, when I asked many of these amazing people who inspired their thinking, one name kept coming up, Roger Dupree. I think Roger can be rightly described as a pioneer in the field of employee communication. And if you don't believe me, just listen to the titles of some of the 10 books he has written on the subject of corporate comms, leadership and culture. So here we go. The Struggle for Identity, The Silent Revolution Against Corporate Conformity, published in 1972. In Search of a Corporate Soul, published in 1978. Communicating for Change, published in 1996. The Credible Company, Leadership Communication Strategies for a Skeptical Workforce, published in 2008. And Bosses, True Stories of the Good, the Bad and the Ugly, 
which came out in February this year. Roger has devoted a lifetime career helping organisations become more human so that in turn they can get the very best out of their people. And he has played a pivotal role in establishing a truly strategic role for IC as the function that creates meaning for people. But despite this very impressive body of work and a highly successful consulting career, you're about to hear a very humble and modest man. Roger reflects on a career that started in the 1950s and runs to the present day. Yes, Roger is not quite ready for retirement. He says in this episode that the last few months of lockdown has shown him what retirement might be like, and basically he's decided against it. So here, from New York, is the legendary Roger Dupree. So, Roger, what an honour, what a privilege to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. I wasn't going to admit to this, but I think I will. I'm ever so slightly nervous about this interview. You've made such a huge contribution to our profession and the way that we work, the way that we think that I just, well, I touch wood that I do justice to that in this conversation. But I just want to say up front, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Totally. So let's kick off your career in internal communication began way back in the 1960s. And of course, that was such a a different time. And organizations must have been approaching internal comms very differently back then. Can you just describe that era for us? Take us back to that time and then explain maybe how what you saw then influenced and shaped your thinking from there on in. I'd love to talk about that. As, as I think back to those early days, four words uh, occur to me. Uh, authority, loyalty, discipline, conformity. I think those are the four descriptors I would use to try to capture the mood of that time. Uh, it was what I used to think of as a salute, doing about face, and go off and do what you're told kind of culture. Um, It's interesting to me, uh, I'll fill in some background here. I came from a blue-collar family, uh, went to uh, Hamilton College, which is one of the finest small liberal arts colleges in the U.S., Uh, Named, by the way, after Alexander Hamilton, who was the first trustee, I suspect they were looking for money and support. But as it turned out, I don't think he provided much of that. But he certainly left the college with his name and his reputation, and I would say his values. I was a history major in college, uh, which I think has helped me tremendously in my role as a corporate communication manager and uh, later as a consultant, because it gave me the 
long view of uh, corporate history and and corporate trends. Uh, I need to describe briefly uh, what that experience was like. It was a small college, 600 students total, all male, by the way, in those days. It's since become co-ed, but 600 uh, young men. Many of my classes, I would say at least half, were uh, held sitting around a table with a teacher scholar at the other end, uh, challenging us, challenging ideas, uh, making us explain ourselves and reflect really on on what we uh, thought at at that time. So it was a a great experience, a, a very um, very what very intimate experience, I would say. Uh, and I was inspired by that experience myself. Uh, to become a teacher. That had always been part of my thinking growing up. So I I pursued that and wound up as an English teacher in uh, secondary school. As a matter of fact, it was the school I attended myself, and I went back there uh, as an English teacher. Uh, I did that for three years, and uh, finally I discovered that I didn't especially like uh, bored, disengaged adolescents. <laughs> that um, this this was a little too much for me. I, I took satisfaction from the people who cared and uh, who were engaged and responsive. I think that's what most teachers do. Uh, they they play the odds, so to speak. And. Uh, after three years or so, uh, one, I went looking for a summer job. Uh, I think it was the summer of 1956, and uh, it was General Electric. And uh, I was at that time making $4,000 a year as, as a teacher with uh, a master's degree. And they told me uh, pretty quickly, we don't have a summer job, but we'd like to hire you as a speechwriter. Wow, uh, that's intriguing. Uh, and then they they named a salary which was sixty five hundred dollars. Uh, that turned out to be some uh, a sixty percent increase in my income. Uh, we had just had a baby that summer, our first uh, a daughter, and uh, so this this was more tempting uh, than I could resist. And after a lot of soul searching. Uh, I took that position. I went into that thinking that business would most likely be dull, stifling. Uh, I had rejected it already as a career choice. And that gave me a perspective that turned out to be very helpful. Uh, it, it made me, I think, more independent-minded than I would have been. Uh, it made me essentially a detached observer, uh, which gave me really a whole different perspective. One of my first discoveries when I entered business at General Electric was that companies, and, and this, this, this contradiction really got to me, companies work amazingly hard to find the best and brightest. And then, in my opinion, immerse them in a system designed to 
limit their innovation, to limit their creativity. And it just made no sense to me at all. And I thought at that point, uh, somebody, people have to start working to humanize these organizations, to uh, unleash this talent that they, they search so hard for and, and uh, work so hard to, to sort out the people who are likely to succeed. Some years later, I, I, I reflected on all of this, and, and, and it occurred to me that there was a reason for it. Uh, I think I'm right in this theory, but I, I'm not sure. What occurred to me was the young executives that I was seeing at that point had all served in World War II oh. and had been deep in uh, command and control style of, of leadership. And they brought all that to the organizations that they had just joined. And so their view of life was, we'll have a chain of command here. Uh, you will not speak ab- above the level of your immediate boss. Uh, you will be loyal. Uh, you will respond to authority. Basically, do as you're told. And and I, I found that explanation to be pretty persuasive because I think those were the people that uh, dominated that culture. And uh, I think for those reasons. So what did all that mean for uh, internal communication? And I pondered this for a long time. It, uh, at that point, it was pretty clear uh, what the impact was. The result was sort of a twofold approach to uh, internal communication, Uh, what I would call frivolous newsletters full of employee service anniversaries, obituaries, births, and want ads, all in the name of uh, one happy company. You know, Mm. that, that was sort of the mentality. We're all in this together. And uh, in return for paternalism, uh, we will expect your loyalty, Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily uh, your ideas or your imagination, but your loyalty. Mm. Uh, The other approach that uh, was uh, very much apparent at that time was publications that were based on propaganda Mm. and uh, very simplistic. uh, I I would say it was sort of the uh, Adam Smith capitalism Mm. uh, coupled with anti-union sentiment. Mm. And so internal communication was focused on one of those two approaches. As I looked at all that, I thought, Somehow, there's got to be a better way. And as an independent observer, I determined to find an approach that uh, I felt was based on real audience information needs as opposed to what was being uh, cascaded down to people along with uh, orders uh, for their actions and, and for their behavior. So. Uh, with all of that as background, 
uh, I, I think you get an idea where I began to uh, think about where I should be coming from as mm -hmm. an internal communication person. I didn't, you know, I, I, I listened to Bill Quirk's uh, interview yesterday, which I thought was phenomenal. Thank you. And, uh, he, uh, like me, uh, had no idea what uh, internal communication meant when he first got into it. I had I, I had no idea that that such a specialty could even exist. Yes. And when I got there, I found yeah, it did, but it was pretty primitive. Yes. And uh, so that. That was all of the thinking, all of the experience that uh, colored my view of things. Just just digging into one thing you said, I, I just, just picking away at this because just really want to understand what you meant by that. You said a couple of times there that you were you felt you were this independent, impartial observer. Was that because you hadn't really committed to business as being your your profession, that you were still maybe thinking, well, I'll try this out, but really I thought teaching was for me. Or was that because of this role as speechwriter? And often as writers within our organisations, we do sometimes have to step back a lot and think, well, how is this going to be perceived? What do my audiences want to hear? Does this make sense? And that puts us in that slight, we have to be at a slight distance, I guess, sometimes to be evaluating how messages land. I just want to, I'm just curious. I guess it, it came from my uh, bias that uh, business was, boring, that it was all focused on uh, revenue and profit, uh, and that uh, if you went to work for a large organization, you surrendered part of your soul. Yes. And uh, so I, I went into it with with that perspective. And then I discovered, once I got into it, I, I'd been absolutely uh, wrong about the idea that it could be dull and boring. In fact, it was exciting was interesting. It was all about human relationships. It was all about how people respond to power, how people use power, what leadership was all about. And uh, so I found it ultimately a fascinating universe. And that's a very neat segue. I tracked down one of your early books, In Search of a Corporate Soul, which I believe was written you know, more than 40 years ago, 44 years ago. And it's, in some ways, I was just amazed by how relevant some of that still felt. And I, I just, <laughs> I wonder on your um, reflection on this, how far have corporations really progressed, do you think, in becoming more human over those four plus decades uh, the quick answer is they've come a very long way, but they still have a very long way to go. Mm. Uh, I lived through the turbulence of the uh, late 1960s into the early 1970s. Uh, that book, In Search of a Corporate Soul, was uh, really my attempt to sum up some of that experience uh, as as one order was uh, giving way to another that was struggling to be born. Mm. And uh, I think that struggle uh, still goes on. I think there's uh, still a fair amount of the old thinking in, in uh, corporate life, but it's much, much improved. Mm, mm. 
So your book, Communicating for Change, is obviously the one that internal comms people probably may know the best. And I think one of the key messages of that book that really stood out for me when I reread it for this interview is that you say too much of what we focus on as communicators is is the what, when people really want to know the why. What does it mean? Is there a reason, do you think, we find it so hard to properly address the why question? Yeah, uh, that's that's really interesting. I think uh, part of it goes back to uh, leaders' reticence to talk about motive uh, mm-hmm. in decision-making. And uh, for fear, I, I think sometimes that they will give away too much. There's still that uh, ghost of need to know that came from the military once again. And so I think there's uh, there's a reticence, you know, what are the the possible risks if I talk about why we're doing this? Will the media pick up on it? And of course, there's a great fear of the media and their questioning and their uh, probing and, and all the rest of it. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Another part of it, perhaps, is an underestimation of the workforce and the belief that, well, they won't really appreciate this anyway or care about it, which is probably one of the most arrogant views uh, yes. that, that somehow they don't care. They care very deeply. And ultimately, the question they want to know is, uh, well, two parts. Why are you doing it? And most importantly, what does it mean to my life? What does it mean to my future? How's this going to affect me? And that's the one question that seldom gets a reply. I also read a contribution you made to the um, to an IC Collective ebook. We'll put an, an, a link to it in the show notes. And it was written obviously before the pandemic, but you wrote that our sort of turbulent times often engender fear and panic, and that results in chaos and, and disengagement. And so our job as professional communicators is to deliver meaning. And I, I'm just wondering, again, that question around how we articulate and share meaning, and also <laughs> whether this current pandemic and what the planet is living through at the moment, do you think that's teaching us new things about how we convey and create meaning inside organizations? Should it teach us new lessons? I, I think ultimately communication in an organization has to be holistic. And by that, I mean, we need to educate people in organizations to the whole picture. Now, what is the marketplace like? What are the market forces that are shaping the strategy and behavior of senior leaders? What What are the challenges? Uh, what is it that uh, the consumer needs from us? All, all of those questions, I think, need to be asked and answered in an effort to educate the workforce about who we are, what we're about, what we're trying to achieve, why it's so important, how those market forces 
are really determining and determining and motivating uh, the strategy. What's the connection between those two things? Yes. I think the, the best way, in my opinion, to somehow rationalize change is to talk about those matters because they make the case for change. Mm-hmm. And all too often, that case is not presented to uh, the people in the organization. Uh, there's an assumption that somehow they will put all this together. If we just feed them information, they will have the capacity to pick and choose and uh, finally understand what we're up to. And, and that's a silly assumption. As you say, people are a a lot more interested. And also, I think there's a lot of leaders that sometimes I, I, I have a very small organization, but even with 30 people, I can be accused of walking around with uh, having this sort of glass head syndrome that, that somehow everyone knows what's inside my head and what I'm thinking. And it, you, no one can actually see inside your head. You do have to explain, as you say, your thinking and the rationale. And you have to... You have to explain over and over and over again. And that, that's a hard thing for leaders to do. Uh, they get sick of saying the same thing and they, they begin to uh, back off the message uh, and believe that, well, now everybody understands because I told them once. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often say to clients, you know, just at the point when you're getting very bored of saying it, it might be when people are starting to sort of finally join up the dots. So now is not the time for bright, shiny new message. We also, I think, have to get to that first line uh, boss. I, I Boss is uh, a word that, that people I, I don't think particularly like because they somehow connect it with arbitrariness and authority and all the rest of it. But that's really what that, Person is, and that's how people who work for that person refer to him or her and uh, see the role. Uh, we have to get to those people and truly educate them uh, in the, uh, the, the holistic view of the business so mm. that they're capable of interpreting these large events, because after all, these are the people who have the greatest amount of contact with the employer doing the work, who uh, in best cases are the creators and the innovators. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump forward slightly then, because I want to focus properly on your latest book, Bosses, the, the true stories of the good, the bad and the ugly. But before we get there then, because we are talking about, about line managers, as you say, frontline managers here. Gatehouse, an agency in the UK, does a survey. It's called the State of the Sector every year. And I see professionals every year complain that the lack of communication skills amongst line managers is one of their biggest challenges and hurdles to effective internal communication. Why do we find it so hard (laughs) to give line managers the information, the confidence, the wherewithal to become communicators, effective communicators. What do you think the, the missing link might be there? Primarily, we haven't trained them. Yes. Uh, we haven't given them a set of expectations that this is a crucial 
part of their role. And uh, we tend not to make good selections. I think it's um, it, it's pretty clear that selection is is the crucial piece of this. You know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as the old saying goes. Mm. And if you pick the wrong people to be bosses, and this happens time and time again, we pick the uh, the best contributor or the best uh, technician, and uh, we say we're now going to promote you to the role of team leader or whatever term we use in, in a particular organization without a list of expectations, behavioral expectations, and most of all, without accountability. Gallup says, and, and I believe this, uh, they say from their research that eight out of 10 times the leadership picks the wrong person to be the boss. Mm. So you, you start with that conundrum. Uh, what do you do when when uh, 80% of the time you're picking the wrong people. Mm. Um, and then uh, we make it even worse by not training them. I think people, for the most part, uh, learn to be uh, managers, team leaders, whatever, by watching others and by going back to their own experience and in, in working for a particular kind of boss. And that's really unfortunate because uh, yeah, learning by doing is great, but you have to have uh, appropriate role models. And uh, I think there has to be accountability. And that's why uh, we have such a problem with first line managers. It's not their fault, uh, clearly. You know, it's uh, they've been thrust into uh, an unfortunate set of circumstances. and. Uh, so what do they rely on? Well, they go back to typically to uh, authority. Mm. And uh, I will tell you what you have to do and I will evaluate you and I will give you feedback that uh, much of the time is negative and discouraging. And uh, that's what we've got. And, and that's why I think while we have a great need for innovation and creativity, we tend to stifle it at that level. I I think I heard you say on an IABC podcast when your book came out, when the boss's book came out, that this is the book you had always wanted to write. And considering you must have written, well, I think it's 10, you can correct me. I just wonder why is that? Because I believe passionately that that relationship at that level between boss and worker is uh, the most influential. You know, th that's, that's really where people live. And uh, their sense of the senior leaders of an organization is that they're celebrities, almost. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they're names. And uh, they have little contact with that senior level. Uh, I'll never forget when I was with Xerox one day, uh, it was our annual meeting and uh, employees were attending the annual meeting along with shareholders. And I saw employees lined up afterwards trying to get the autograph of the CEO. And I thought, oh my God. Mm. <laughs> 
you know. Yes. <laughs> this is what they think of senior leaders, that they, they are people to... Uh, whose autograph means something. In, in, in researching for this interview, I got the impression, and again, you can correct me here, but I got the impression that you've, you have been a little critical of the internal comms profession over the years. I, I read a, a phrase you used where you described IC professionals as stubborn, stubbornly tactical. <laughs> and I just wondered, is that true? Do you feel that sometimes we are stubbornly tactical? And, and, and why do you think that is? What, it is? what is it about us and the way we approach things that makes us that way? I, I think it's role confusion. Um, and this is one thing I've, I've seen for all the years that I've been part of and studying uh, the profession. Historically, we don't know we are. We don't know the history, by the way, of of internal communication. We we don't have that sense of what it was like way back in the beginning, and what has it evolved to. And then uh, we get caught up on our sort of our individual interpretations of what that role is. So we have people who are highly media focused. Uh, who take their cues from journalism. Yes. Uh, some of whom in the past I, I've seen would like to be investigative reporters in their own organizations. And I think, my God, <laughs> you <laughs> ever think anybody will let you do that? You know, your your job is is to clarify and to advocate and all the rest of it. It's not to air the company's dirty laundry. Mm, mm. Um, so, so we've gone through periods, uh, as I look back on the evolution of, of internal communication, where we thought we were journalists, uh, where we thought we were media mavens, uh, where we thought we were coaches, all sorts of different interpretations of what the role really is and, and what it should be. And I, I think that's that's a big problem. Bottom line, it's easier to be a tactician than it is to be a strategist. To be a strategist, you have to, I think, be, uh, to use that phrase again, a holistic thinker. Mm. You have to uh, have that that talent. It's relatively easy to be a reporter. And that's the way lots of people see their role as either simply moving information, cascading it, reporting what's going on, whether they use an internet or a newsletter. And that puts the burden on the audience to assemble all of this, these bits and pieces of information and to uh, derive some meaning from it all. And, and I think that's an impossible challenge. And presumably actually getting more difficult because as there are more channels and platforms and as everyone in the organisation be, can become, I guess, a, a publisher of content on social, internal social networks, then the noise level goes up. And then I, I don't know what you feel about that, but potentially the meaning level, if there's such a thing, can, can go down. Um, I, I don't know if you have any reflections on 
you know, the noise levels inside organizations at the moment, the way that we've perhaps used or even misused technology as internal communicators. Yeah, that's a major issue. And, And I go back again to the role of that first line boss uh, who should be an interpreter. Yes. We haven't equipped them to be interpreters, but that's really what they should be. What, you know, what is this big decision, this reorganization? What does it mean for us as a team? And what are the implications for our behavior and uh, for our our own team strategies? Uh, I, I think uh, issues like that need to be aired, and uh, people need to have the opportunity to ask uh, tough questions. I also wonder whether you've had any reflections on we've seen the rise of employee activism. You know, we've seen workers walking out, whether it's Wayfair in the US, we've had Google employees signing petitions about Dragonfly here in the UK, a retailer, Ted Baker, also got into some uh, sticky situation. Is employee activism actually a good thing? I'm wondering whether we should be dampening it or whether it's ju- it just means that we need to learn to listen harder, I guess. And, and, and as you say about dialogue, actually encourage those conversations to be had internally. Absolutely. I, you know, if you silence and suppress conflict, which uh, we have often done, uh, you're going to get an explosive reaction. Uh, just mm-hmm. look at what's happening in uh, the streets of American cities and cities in the UK and, and all over the world uh, in response to uh, police brutality yes. and to the murder of, of uh, the man in Minneapolis with a cop uh, sitting essentially on it or kneeling on his neck. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you suppress that kind of stuff and basically say, minimize it, uh, then I think you bring on uh, an explosive response that you're going to have a very difficult time controlling. We need to confront conflict. We need to appreciate conflict. So I, I think activism should be encouraged and it should encourage dialogue and and understanding and uh, inclusion. I'm very much encouraged by what's happening in the U.S. and, and the fact that protesters are finally out there acknowledging what we've all known was, was true in uh, past his, racial history. In the UK in particular, every every Thursday night for a while, we were going outside on our streets and, and clapping for the NHS, the National Health Service. And it seemed to me through this pandemic that all of a sudden the world was interested in frontline workers, not just in uh, you know, uh, in in hospitals and in care homes, but we had newfound appreciation for the guys and the girls that were turning up to um, in our grocery stores and, 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 and collecting our rubbish and all the rest of it. But it seems to me that, and in your boss's book in particular, you talk a little bit about blue collar employees who you can see have got this this relationship which is just not built on trust. It's just not a meaningful relationship. I loved a quote, but I believe you were running a workshop 
And uh, one of the employees, first line, frontline employee said to you, buddy, you can believe two signs around here, regardless of what the bosses are saying. One says wet paint and the other says, pardon our appearance. All the rest is bullshit. And that made me laugh out loud because I thought, you know what? We've got so many clients who, you know, hand over heart, have still got employees that just think, I, I, don't, I don't feel part of this. There isn't mutual understanding and there isn't mutual respect. Could this, am I being too rose-tinted in my, <laughs> have I got rose-tinted spectacles on to believe that this pandemic could flatten hierarchy a little bit, could bring leaders more into the mindset of being almost a servant leader to their front line? Or am I just, uh, yeah, am I just a bit idealistic there in that, that thinking? I, yeah, I, I absolutely think it's it's that kind of opportunity, whether or not uh, people will take it is a whole different question. I, I mean, I look at the reaction of politicians in the U.S. to the pandemic, and uh, some uh have been very dismissive. Uh, Some have been very proactive. Uh, The governor of the state where I live, New York State, uh, Andrew Cuomo, has has really been the exemplar in all of this. I I marvel at what he's uh, done. Every single day since the, uh, the pandemic became real, He's been on television for an hour, including yes. weekends, uh, explaining uh, what how people must behave, uh, explaining what's likely to happen based on experience in other countries, and imploring people uh, to to exhibit the right behavior. There are 19 million people in New York State. And he has somehow persuaded 19 million people, most of whom are willing to wear a mask, uh, to stay six feet apart, uh, and uh, to uh, stay in their homes for three months. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing, amazing bit of persuasion and an amazing bit of communication. I've marveled uh, at his behavior as a leader uh, as I've watched all this unfold. If I were advising him, and that's certainly not going to happen, but if I were, I would be telling him to do exactly what he's doing. Yes. In contrast, by the way, to our president, who somehow has uh, locked himself up in the White House uh, dismissed all the data about how serious this uh, this pandemic is, and uh, who, in general, has uh, delegated all responsibility to the fifty governors of the fifty states. Mm. Uh, I think that is simply outrageous. If people haven't watched Como, we will put we will put the links to it in the show notes. He's a powerhouse. And what's so interesting about his delivery and his content is it's delivered with such, I mean, there's information, absolutely, there's information, there's clear instruction, but he's also delivered, I always felt with a degree of, I don't know if humility is the right word, 
but he's yes. putting him, himself in the message. You believe him. Yes. It, it, it's, yeah, he's incredible. <laughs> I don't know what more to say. I think you're right. As a strategic comms advisor, all you could say is keep going. <laughs> yes. No, exactly. And and I and I really uh, admire him for uh, his ability to hang in and, and say the same thing day after day after day. And uh, the outcome proves it. You know, New York State had the highest number of um, cases, COVID-19 cases, and the highest number of deaths. Some, If I'm correct, some 15,000 people have died in New York State uh, in this pandemic. And uh, he has managed to turn that around to the point where we now have the best record on COVID-19 in the United States. So mm. uh, it, it's just been an amazing job that, of leadership. Before we leave the subject of, of bosses and leaders completely, I just wondered whether we've got listeners who might be uh, just about to take on line management responsibility or early in their career as, as maybe team leaders. Is there one thing above all they could do from tomorrow to improve their effectiveness as a leader? I think the one thing that I would say is to listen uh, empathetically to their audience. Mm. Communication, internal communication, uh, more than anything else, needs to be audience focused. And I think too often, uh, the audience is taken for granted, and uh, the focus is on the views of the leadership, and that doesn't work. I'm a big fan of listening. We've been doing a lot of broadcasting at people, which is often what happens in a crisis because we want to get instructions out. But listening is 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 so important. Well, it's cathartic, and you know what has always fascinated me about running focus groups. Uh, which is a major tool, as you know, of, of consulting, mm. uh, is the, the number of people who will come to you after the session is over and say, I really enjoyed that. Yes. That, that was uh, really great. This is the first opportunity I've ever had to express my views and my questions. Yes. So, uh, there's a payoff there that... I don't think everybody quite understands. Does does that mean you're a, a secret fan of of qualitative research um, over over quant? I mean, it, it seems to me it's so easy to run a poll now because we've got all this software. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, qualitative research with the open question where you're really listening to people's answers. You're getting verbatim quotes out of them. Is that something you've enjoyed in your career? Oh, I absolutely agree. And that was a favorite part of my career mm. was uh, sitting there listening to people. I've even seen, and you in your own experience may have seen this, people become very emotional. In the oh, book. yes. I've yeah. seen people break into to tears yes. and, as they express some of their frustrations. Yes. So, uh, I love that part of, of consulting. I never got sick of running focus groups. You're right. The, the quantitative research 
so often is puzzling. I mean, they, <laughs> so often there are contradictions that, that you can't resolve. Yes. Uh, there are uh, findings that, that leave you scratching your head. Um, so I, I, I want to hear face to face with passion what people are feeling. And and it's interesting, isn't it, when you, you know, you can ask someone and you know, describe the, I don't know, I'm making this up now, but describe the strategic priorities of this organization. And then they'll reel you off four strategic priorities. And then you can say, and and, and, and what does that mean to you? And they'll, they'll look at you as, well, I've got no idea. I just remember them because they're on the back of my lanyard or they're on the wall as I walk in, you know, and, and, and you can't, you can't get that from any other kind of research. You really do have to, to sit people down and, and watch their expressions. I, I sometimes had to refrain from saying to the group, God, how, how have you dealt with all this? <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't believe what you're telling me is that bad. <laughs> And just the language that people use. I I, uh, I had one client that was going through privatization, but didn't want to use the word privatization. They wanted to use the phrase attracting external capital. And I went into a focus group and I said, and how do you all feel about the plans that this company has to attract external capital? And they all, to a man, and they were all men, turned around and said, uh, hey, love, do you mean privatization? And I was like, right, let, let, let's just call it what it is, shall we? Thanks very much. I'll send that back, right message right back to head office. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, that kind of research, I think. So here's a question for you, and I'm asking it on behalf of Rachel Miller, who is, is, is pretty well known in the UK, founder of the agency All Things Like I See. She's obviously read a lot of your work. She's interested in what you believe to be the respective responsibilities of HR and internal comms. She's she's thinking, how do we avoid a turf war here? Where does the role of HR stop and where does the role of internal comms begin, I guess? I've believed for a very long time that the silo problem undermined uh, what we're attempting to do in internal communication, that you know, it was the age-old question, where should this report? Should it be part of public affairs? Should it be part of marketing? Should it be part of human resources? Uh, where where does it belong? I think that's a fallacious discussion. Mm-hmm. I think what really needs to happen is that those silo boundaries have to be taken down. And we need in organizations to create a group that would include all of these specialties in one group, uh, human resource people, internal communication people, leadership coaches, Mm. people who understand uh, reward and recognition, Mm. all in, in one group. And uh, with a, a very senior person leading that group and having the ear of the senior staff. And uh, I think that's the way things should be run. I think as long as, as we have these separate organizations behaving as though the disciplines uh, had boundaries, we're not going to succeed in properly. Uh, advising and coaching the senior staff. Mm. What you described 
sounds so powerful. But at the same time, I have to be honest, I haven't seen that in many inside many organizations. So it'd be great. I've seen it in two or three places mm. and uh, admired the the way that people work together when you took away the label that, well, I am an HR person or I, I'm an internal communication person. Mm. Uh, what they should be thinking and saying, I think, is I am an advisor to senior leaders who need counsel and who need support. Mm. And uh, we should create a group that's capable of providing all that. Mm, I love that idea. So we we started this at the beginning, talking about the 1960s, this kind of command control culture that possibly stemmed from people who had experienced the Second World War, you know, expecting blind loyalty. And obviously, so much has has shifted in that time and, and changed. I'm just wondering, when you set out on this journey, didn't even know what internal comms was, you've ended up being, I think it's fair to say, the world's leading authority, really. It's, it, every time I spoke to anyone internal comms about the fact that I was about to interview you, they were like, oh, really? That's absolutely amazing. You must ask him this. Did you, when did you know there was a moment, there must have been a moment when you thought, oh my goodness me, I've, I've had such an impression on a on a on a profession, um, was there a moment when you suddenly realised that <laughs> you were having such a profound impact on a particular discipline? Oh, that, that's a, an interesting question. I, I guess when I started writing the the books as a way of uh, defining what I thought this profession ought to look like and be like, uh, then I, I began to have some small insights that I was having an influence. Mm. Um, and probably um, one of the things that uh, really brought this home to me uh, was something like what you just said. Um, the communication leadership exchange in the US, they did a survey of, of their members who are mostly senior communication uh, executives in the US. And they told me that uh, my name kept coming up over and over and over again. And uh, they, in fact, gave me a lifetime award at their, one of their meetings. And, and that, to me, was uh, proof that at least I was an influencer. I, I don't see myself as, as the uh, world's leading authority on inter, internal communication. I, I don't know that anybody can claim that title, but um, I do see myself as an influencer, and uh, that's very gratifying. How would you like to be remembered? What would you like to be remembered for? I think on my gravestone, I'd like to see he spoke truth to power. And and you're still working? I'm still working, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I pick and choose very uh, carefully what I want to do, but I'm still working. And you say you pick and choose. I'm just—I have to ask this question. I'm just very curious. What kind of projects 
when you see them, what kind of projects do you feel you just can't resist? You know, what, what, what passes and you think, think oh, I have to get involved in that. That's just, that sounds too good. What kinds of projects are those? I, I love, I guess it's a teacher in me. I love training uh, projects. Uh, I love to have the opportunity to work with a company uh, to get their uh, first line team leaders uh, to conform to what I think they should be. Mm. Uh, I find them, interestingly, at the same time, frustrating. And the frustration comes mainly over the turf war between human resources and internal communication. Mm. And I, I have seen uh, several of those projects blow up because uh, of that uh, turf rivalry. Uh, and it has to do with HR saying, well, training is, is strictly ours. You and communication have no business being part of this. Mm. And the communication people uh, pushing back and saying, well, we understand what communication strategy is all about. We don't think you do. And uh, so we really should be part of it. So uh, I, I've seen in too many cases, people lose their their nerve to proceed with the work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I liked a, a comment that Bill Quirk made when he said, uh, I'm only as good as my client will let me be. Yes. And I think that's a profound truth about uh, consulting. One of my guys once said to me, well, at the end of the day, Katie, we get the clients we deserve. And I thought, yep, (laughs) that cuts both ways. (laughs) Let's turn to those quick fire questions, if we may, Roger. Um, What what would most surprise people about Roger Dupree? Probably that that I don't particularly like the spotlight that uh, at heart, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. Uh, and I think people would look at that fact and say, well, how do you explain all those books and <laughs> presentations and all the rest of it? Uh, do, do, you, do you have a, a way of dealing with that reticence of stepping forward? Is there something deep down that makes you, there must be something that deep down makes you do it anyway? Is there something you tell yourself or... How do you get over that that feeling of just thinking at the end of the day, this isn't really me putting my head above the parapet? Yeah. I I finally uh, resolved this by saying um, there are two Roger Duprees. There's there's the one who's out front as the professional, and there's uh, the other guy uh, who... uh, probably would prefer not to be doing this <laughs> yeah and i guess as long as you can give both rogers some time and space to do what they most prefer doing i i think i think most people who get lots of recognition finally come to that uh that uh i'm one public persona but uh in reality uh i am this person who uh, doubts really uh, that uh, he's what people say he is, <laughs> mm. or she. Mm. 
I think I think a lot of people will be heartened by hearing you say that. It's interesting, I was invited to speak at one of these many virtual events that people are holding now about imposter syndrome. And I couldn't believe, you know, 700 people joined this call. And it, it, it obviously, a lot of people, even in very senior positions, actually imposter syndrome seems to strike people who are, uh, who are very successful. You're more likely to, you're more likely to feel it. Uh, it's not quite what you're talking about, but I think people be heartened by the fact that, um, as you say, it's uh, you do it regardless, even though there yes. are times when you don't feel massively comfortable doing it. Um, right. So what one book, journal or website should all leaders read? Uh, that's, that's a really tough question. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm able to cite one source. I, no. I think it's... I think really what it all comes down to is uh, becoming an avid student of organizations and paying attention uh, to what is happening in the larger society and what impact that's having on business organizations, organizations of all sorts. That's really what it's all about. I, I I think you have to be that that person who is willing to uh, read, to study, to listen, and uh, make yourself one of the most informed persons in your profession. Mm. And from that, I think you are able to create other things. So here's a question that often stumps people. What would you do tomorrow if you knew you couldn't fail? So we take we take failure off the table. Probably retire. <laughs> well, people could argue you, you deserve. Uh, yeah, and I've, I've gotten a good look at that over the last three months, and I don't, don't like much of what I see. <laughs> Great. I can have you back for part two. We'll get you and Bill Quirk on the show together. That would be a laugh. <laughs> so when you think of the world's best leader, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Well, it, it probably I, I would list several. I would uh, go to the well-known ones like uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Churchill and uh, Obama. would mm. be up there for me. Um, and uh, and certainly Andrew Cuomo. I, I mm. think he has behaved in such a way that uh, uh, he he has gained all sorts of respect all over the world, and he's such a contrast to Trump. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So finally, we give you a billboard. Uh, for millions to see. It's kind of a metaphoric billboard, really, but we do actually design them up as billboards. And you get to put a message on that billboard. So what would your message be, Roger? Uh, That's easy. Seek truth and understanding. Oh, I like it very much. Before we break, Roger, I just want to make sure, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't, that you'd like me to ask you? I think we've pretty well covered the waterfront. There's uh, 
nothing that uh, that, that occurs to me. Uh, I, again, I think your questions were outstanding. The only thing that strikes me, Roger, is that a couple of things clicked for me when you said you studied history, and then you taught English, and I thought, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> I get this now because. I mean, I studied history, so that was my degree, but I always wanted to be Lois Lane. You know, I wanted to be a journalist. Yeah. I was pretty much <laughs> Lois Lane growing up. And when I read your books, I mean, particularly, I think it's communicating for change and you start saying at the beginning, um, you know, you've got to bear with me. and we, we need to share some basic assumptions because if we don't both all assume these assumptions, go off and read a whodunit. <laughs> And and that made me laugh out loud. But your books are so readable. It it must be that passion for both history, the long view, the story, putting things in context, but also a passion for for words, I guess, and making meaning. I can can only think that's that's the secret sauce, would you say? I I agree. I I think the one thing that's missing in the experience of most uh, workers uh, is contact. Yes. And I I mean, I hear that all, I've heard that for years and years, people don't quite express it that way. I mean, they, they will uh, talk about the fact that they don't understand the strategy or that uh, they don't uh, know how their contribution uh, relates to the whole. Uh, yeah. Things of that sort. I think what they're really saying is, give me some context for my life in this workplace to help me understand the meaning of uh, of my career and the meaning, really, of my life. Mm, mm. And potentially, that's getting more important. Oh, I, yes. You know, we we I don't like that sort of reductionist reductionist sort of theory that says, you know, well that generation was like this and this generation's like that. But nevertheless, we are told that the younger generations entering the workplace are more interested in purpose, are more interested in why their organisations exist and who they're there to serve, and their contribution to society. So that that context of of, of why we do it and how we fit in possibly is becoming more important. I think. Well, there's no question. I I was uh, looking earlier at the writings of Henry David Thoreau, and uh, it's interesting to me. I I was I used his comment about a corporate soul as the title of that 1978 book, mm. and I couldn't find the exact comment. And I was searching through the book, and and I still can't find it, but. Uh, and just all of his writings, uh, comment after comment about your soul, uh, the impact of what you're doing on your soul. He he was a businessman, interestingly. Uh, he, he created the best pencil that of that time, and. Uh, He's not really known for that, but he he was an entrepreneur. Wow! And uh, at the same time, uh, his one of his main um, interests and comments uh, is uh, about his soul, the soul, how the soul is affected by who you are and what you do and 
and uh, in fact inspires, I guess, who you are. So uh, that's worth remembering. It's it's what I love about the language that you use. So using the language around the soul, using words like creating a more human organization is that, you know, William Kahn came along in 1990 and, and, and almost I think by accident use this phrase employee engagement and I don't think he's massively pleased if uh, from what I've read and and heard him speak on this subject I don't think he's massively pleased with what happened afterwards um but but that phrase employee engagement for some reasons never worked for me I think it's because we never go down the pub well certainly not in the UK we go down the pub at the end of the day and say I felt massively engaged at work today we just (laughs) don't um whereas your language feels it's just real language and it means something. Um, Thank you. mm. I I think engagement comes and goes. I I don't think there's anyone who is permanently engaged. I think it's always a reaction to circumstances. Uh, One day I may be highly engaged. Another day I may be totally disengaged. So uh, I think that's, that's a feeling. It's, it's not a constant condition. Mm. Mm, that makes perfect sense. Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure to do this. Uh, you know, I don't often get an opportunity to uh, to philosophize about uh, this profession and where I've been and what I might have uh, contributed. So uh, thank you for that opportunity. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast and also for season three of the show. To find out more about Roger and the things we discussed, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcast. You'll find the show notes there plus all our other episodes. And while you're on our site, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called, I Saw This and Thought of You. We've been giving this newsletter a lot of extra love and attention during this pandemic. It's where you'll find newsy nuggets about comms, free resources, new reports, the latest events, and of course, updates on the show. Listeners, As I record this, we are about to exceed 40,000 downloads in 55 countries worldwide. From a standing start, and because this is aimed at a very discreet audience, I am amazed by those metrics. But what's more important to me is that I've heard from listeners who've reached out to me to say that these conversations are inspiring, informing and motivating them. Listeners, you can help this show reach an even wider audience simply by rating it on iTunes. So if you could do that, I'd be incredibly grateful. And please do continue to reach out to me. I love hearing from listeners. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn And you can also find me via AB's website. In particular, tell me the types of people you'd like me to interview in season four, which kicks off in September 2020. 
So until then, lovely listeners, keep motivating, informing and inspiring your own audiences. Do stay safe and well. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts. Thank you.